Lord, we give this time to you, God, and, and as Julie prayed, we ask that you change us from the inside out, that we wouldn't leave here the same, God, and we know that you do that by your spirit and by your word, Lord, so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that we would be able to see the life-giving properties of your word, how they apply to us, how they apply not to, to us just generally, but specifically in what we're going through or what we just went through or what we're about to go through. God, we know that you meet us right where we're at. So I pray each and every one of us would walk out of here recognizing that we heard from the living God and He, you spoke to us about something that pertains to us in the present. So bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you recall, we've been going through 2 Samuel uh, lately in the last few chapters leading up to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, David had this falling out with his son Absalom. Amnon, one of David's other sons, uh, actually raped his half-sister Tamar. David didn't deal with it, so Amnon gets upset, he gets riled up, he has bitterness brewing for two years, and then he kills his half-brother Amnon. That leads to Absalom basically being exiled from the land for a time. Uh, after three or so more years, Absalom finally comes back by the advice of Joab, the commander of the army, of Israel. And when he comes back, he's still sitting in Jerusalem for a couple more years without seeing his father face to face. So more time goes by. And finally, David meets up with his son, Absalom. They appear to reconcile. They meet, they, 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 they share some words. They have some tears. But as we discussed the last time we talked about Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 14, it was not only reluctant reconciliation, but it wasn't full reconciliation. See, it was too late. The damage had already been done in Absalom's heart. He's bitter. He's resentful towards his father. And we'll see in 2 Samuel chapter 15, all these things come to the surface. Now, what's going to happen here to sum it up, is Absalom is essentially going to crown himself as the king of Israel. And we're going to see the difference between the type of king that Absalom is and the type of king that David is. See, Absalom, he's power hungry. He's seeking position while David, he continues to seek the Lord. David is not fighting for his position as king. He's not fighting to keep the position that God has given him, while Absalom, he's campaigning for the crown. And this is the title of the teaching, Campaigning for the Crown. Campaigning for the Crown. We will see Absalom make a series of political moves to get that crown. He wants it so bad. Now, how does that pertain to us? See, citizens of the kingdom, Christians, I mean, We're called by the Lord not to seek lofty positions, but to identify with the lowly. Let me show you. It's Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We'll get back here a later, a little bit later in the text, but I want to read this for you. This really sums up the heart of this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Luke chapter 14. This is uh, the Lord's words, Jesus speaking in verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, 
When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you forever. Whoever, and this is the key here for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus tells us to identify with lowly positions, lowly places. Wait for the Lord to exalt you. Why does God want us to identify with lowly positions? Because he chooses lowly people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, basically summed up, it shows us the, the, the reality of the type of people that God chooses. And you want to know what the qualifications are? He chooses the weak, He chooses the foolish, He chooses the base things of this world. Not the people seeking lofty positions. He seeks the people that identify with the lowly. He chooses them and he exalts them. That's exactly what he did with David, but that's not what he's going to do with Absalom. When I was in Calvary House, that year-long uh, recovery ministry, uh, there was these guys, I won't mention their names in case they ever hear this, uh, they'll know who I'm talking about. But they used to have this, this saying, they would say, uh, position yourself. Position yourself. And what they were saying was, because there was different jobs at the church, and the, the basic job was you did landscaping outside, and it's Florida. It is hot. Uh, it's even hotter than it gets out here in California because of the humidity and everything. It's absolutely miserable uh, sometimes. So you kind of wanted to get off the landscaping thing and get a job inside, whether it was custodial or maintenance or uh, in the grill, anything to get outside of the heat in Florida. So they'd say, position yourself, uh, make yourself appear a certain way, to the leaders so they'll say oh this guy's good let's put him inside and it would bother me and i was a new believer i didn't really know why it bothered me but i didn't go about it that route i was just content with the lord happy to do whatever i could do for the lord because he saved my life and it just so happened as i was content with the lowly position god began giving me more and more responsibilities over time this is not what we'll see with Absalom. Let's look at it. Second Samuel chapter 15. Verse 1. After it happened. What happened? That reconciliation. At the end of Second Samuel chapter 14. Between Absalom and David. After that happened. That Absalom provided himself. With chariots and horses. And 50 men to run. Before him. Absalom. He's building influence. This is a political move. He's providing for himself chariots and horses and men so that he can build this campaign, so that he can build himself up to influence the people. This is point number one. Trust in God's ability, not your own. Trust in God's ability, not your own. Absalom. He's trusting in his own methods. He's trusting in his own provision. He's trying to make something happen for himself that isn't from the Lord. In fact, we see all of the all over the Bible that this isn't from the Lord. Let me show you. It's Psalm chapter 20. In Psalm chapter 20. 
And this really comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it tells us that the king wasn't to multiply horses for himself. That's what the pagans did. The king was to trust the Lord. Building on that, in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Absalom. He put his trust in horses. He put his trust in his possessions. He put his trust in his own ability to make something happen, and he wasn't trusting the Lord. It started with providing horses and chariots and this small little army, but eventually at the end of this chapter, we'll see that Absalom attempts to provide himself the crown. He attempts to provide himself the kingdom. See, When we take our own destiny into our own hands, we're asking for destruction. When we trust in our ability versus God's ability, we're asking for devastation. Be careful if you say, this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is my plan for my life. This is what I'm going to do at school. This is what I'm going to do for my career. This is what I'm going to do after the season that I'm in now. If you haven't asked the Lord about what he wants you to do, you know, we have our plans and sometimes our plans lead to death. God may have a totally different plan in mind. We won't know what that plan is unless we ask him. And when we ask him, we got to trust him. That he has our own best interest in mind. See, Absalom, as he tries to position himself, he's going to find out that this position isn't his to be taken. We also see with Absalom something very different than we saw in the person of David. David wasn't campaigning. You know, David was anointed king as a very young man. He wasn't trying to gain influence by campaigning his role as the next king. People followed David. Why? Because he had a heart after God. And they saw something different in David than they saw in anyone else. He wasn't recruiting people. People just saw him. What kind of people? Outcast. The people that nobody else wanted. They saw something different in David. And they said, this is a man that's worthy to follow. He didn't have to persuade people to follow him. Absalom is not the same type of king as his father David. Let's continue. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 2. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was when anyone who had a lawsuit come to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Absalom, he'd rise early. He'd get at that gate. Now, there's nothing wrong with waking up early. I like to wake up early. We see that Absalom was ambitious, and being ambitious in and of itself is not wrong. It's what are we ambitious about? Absalom, it wasn't about getting up early and seeking the Lord. Okay, Absalom wasn't waking up early to get in his devotions, to get in prayer. He was waking up early to campaign for the kingdom. So he'd go to the gate. Before people could ever get to King David, Absalom would cut him off. 
Because in that culture, during that time period, the king of Israel was the ultimate judge of Israel other than God. And so if a person in their city, they feel felt like uh, that, that their specific lawsuit or whatever happened, that their judge of their town or their city dealt with them unjustly, then they had a right as a citizen of Israel to come right to the king and say, hey, listen, I don't feel like my judge or my ruler dealt with me fairly. What do you think? And the king had the ability to have the last call. So Absalom, he's going to the gate to cut people off before they can even ask David for justice. And it says here in verse 3, Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Absalom was deceiving the people. These people didn't even have a chance to get to David. We see in the last chapter that people actually came to get this old lady actually came and petitioned to David and asked him. She kind of made up this story, but we know people had direct access to David. So Absalom is deceiving the people and telling them nobody has time for you in this kingdom. David doesn't have time for you. None of the commanders have time for you, but I got time for you. He's manipulating them. Again, establishing this influence. And as we establish this influence, he's trying to instill dissatisfaction in the people. Man, David doesn't have time for me. What kind of king is that? He's not a good shepherd. He doesn't make time to talk to me, but Absalom does. This is what the people were thinking. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 4. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. So what he's doing is he's basically agreeing with all the people, whether they're right or wrong. He's just agreeing with all the people, assuming that their cause is just. He's rooting for them. He has their back. It's not about making justice happen or pursuing justice. It's about pursuing power. As he says, Oh, that I were made judge in the land. This is point number two. Seek lowly positions. Not lofty positions. Seek lowly positions, not lofty positions. As we read in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, don't, don't sit at the, the best table. Don't take the best position. Take the lowly seat. Heck, stand at the back wall until someone actually gives you a seat. Sit on the floor. Take the lowest position you can take. So then you're setting yourself up to be exalted. And it's so true for us as well as it was for Absalom. Absalom wants that lofty position as king. And he thinks that he can take the crown. But the crown can't be taken. God's crown can't be taken. It can only be giving, given. All the campaigning in the world isn't going to solidify Absalom as the king of Israel. This position was only the Lord's to give. Now, what Absalom is doing here, by trying to take the crown, he's not just putting himself in the place of king of Israel, he's putting himself in the place of God. Because it's God's crown to give, and he's trying to steal this thing. Sometimes, we can do this as well. 
We can try to take the throne of our lives. We can try to take control of our lives. We can try to be our own kings, our own gods. I don't know about you, but I am a horrible god of my own life. I am a horrible king. When I was god and king of my own life, it led to several ODs and arrest and a hideous lifestyle. God's a much better god than me. He's a much better king than me. So we get to choose... Do I allow God to be king? Do I allow him to wear the crown? Do I allow him to be Lord and rule over my life? Or do I seek to take the crown that only belongs to him? See, Absalom, the reason that all these things happen was because he was discontent with the authority that God placed in his life. And it was his dad, because his dad didn't deal with Amnon and Tabar. And then after that, his dad basically exiled him and wanted nothing to do with them. Discontentment with the authority of man is really discontentment with the authority of God. Why do I say that? In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, if you want to write it down, Romans 13, 1, it tells us that all authority is placed by God. All authority, even corrupt authority. So if I'm rebelling against the authority of man, the Bible teaches that I'm rebelling against the authority of God, unless that authority asks me to sin. But if that authority asks me to do anything other than sin against God, I'm to submit. I'm to obey and if i reject their position and i seek to take their position i'm not only seeking their position i'm seeking god's position and what i'm saying is god doesn't know what he's doing god doesn't know what he's doing by putting this authority figure in my life i would be a better judge i would be a better ruler i would be a better leader why does god have this person over me By rejecting the authority of man, we're rejecting the authority of God. So we're called to be content in the position that we're in, in the authority that God's placed in our life. See, it was discontentment in large that brought Absalom to this place to reject not just the authority of David, but the authority of God. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 5. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So the idea here is that as people went to bow down to Absalom, he would stop them, embrace them, and give them a kiss. What is he saying? Hey, we're equals in this, man. I'm a man of the people. I'm right down here with you. If I'm king, you don't even have to bow to me. We're just going to be equals. That's the expression that he's giving here. And because... The people were so persuaded, it says Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. In the original Hebrew, uh, this isn't to say that he say that he stole their affections. What it literally means is that Absalom deceived their mind. He had them thinking something about himself that wasn't true. This is point number three. You can fool man, but not God. You can fool man, but not God. 
He had him fooled, all right. And we're going to see all a bunch of these people end up supporting him. More people end up supporting Absalom than end up going with David in the wilderness. We'll see that later, especially in the next chapter. But what's what's interesting about this is that Israel historically, during the rule and reign of David, they look at David as the greatest king Israel ever had. David was flawed, right? He committed murder. He committed adultery. He he was a flawed man. But still, Israel would say, David was the best king we ever had. And even with the best king they ever had, they were discontent. And they end up choosing, at least most of the people, This other immoral king that's got them deceived. That's telling them what they want to hear. It's a picture of two other kings. It's a picture of King Jesus. And it's a picture of the Antichrist. Many people don't want Jesus. They don't want his rule. They don't want his reign. They don't want to submit to his authority. But by making that decision to not submit to Jesus' authority, if it comes time that the Antichrist comes, what people are going to do is they're going to have to submit to one king or another. They either submit to Jesus or they submit to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, much like Absalom, is going to deceive the people. Let me show you. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll just look at verse 10. Speaking of the Antichrist, uh, a large portion of this section here. It says, And with all unrighteous deception among those... Or look at verse 9 so you get a little context. The coming of the lawless one, he's speaking of the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So they rejected the truth of Christ. This is future. And they're going to be deceived by the Antichrist. He's going to fool the people. See, people, they often get caught up and deceived by the image and they miss the reality. They miss the truth just as that text was saying. They're not going to accept the truth of Christ. So what they will accept are the lies of the Antichrist. This theme keeps coming up time and time again. It's really one of the central themes of both first and second Peter, or sorry, first and second Samuel. Uh, if you recall in first Samuel chapter 16, it says that God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. The people are looking at the outward appearance of Absalom. He looks like he has it all together. He's wise. He's good looking. Remember, he has like three pounds of hair every year, right? I don't even know how that happens, but that's what the Bible tells us. So, the people are being deceived. They're not looking at the heart. They don't recognize the wickedness of Absalom's heart. But God, just as 
we'll see him do with Absalom, so too does he do with the Antichrist. He's going to reveal the heart of Absalom. He's going to reveal the heart of the Antichrist. And we'll get into this a little bit later in the teaching. But the Antichrist, halfway through the tribulation, he's going to reveal his true colors. And Jesus says, when that time happens, when the abomination of desolation takes place, the Jews better run because he's coming after them. He's going to start wiping them out. What's the point? We can fool man, but not God. The true us will all eventually come out. It will all be revealed in time. We can trick people for a while, but God will eventually reveal our true colors. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. <clears throat> now, it came to pass... After 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made of the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelled at Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, it says that 40 years had gone by. Okay, um. I love this about the Bible. Uh, there's so many different manuscripts that we're able to compare different manuscripts. Uh, and some early manuscripts actually say that it was four years, not 40 years. So some scholars side with that only four years went by. And the majority of scholars that look at this 40-year mark, they don't believe that 40 years actually passed. They believe that Absalom was 40 years old. But I love this about the Bible. It's not like the Quran where there's only one copy of only, uh, well, there's multiple copies, but only one version. We can look at all these different manuscripts and be able to compare with some of these details that are relatively insignificant. It doesn't mess with the message, but we can see, hey, was it four years? Was it 40 years? I can do my homework, start looking into these things and form my own opinion. Regardless, the Bible's saying time went by. Okay, some time went by. At least four years could be more. And as time went by, Absalom approaches his father. He said, I made this vow to the Lord that if he brought me back to Jerusalem, I was going to offer sacrifices and worship and all these different things. Did he say that to the Lord? Did he make that vow? We really don't know. But we do see something. Absalom is being deceitful once again. Regardless of whether or not he made a vow, he's not going this to just fulfill a vow, whether he said it or not. He's do doing this whole operation in Hebron to, uh, to really claim the throne, to have himself anointed as the king of Israel. He says that he's going there to serve the Lord in verse 8, but he's really going to serve himself. And this is sickening. He used... The cover of worship to commit treason. He covered, he used the cover of spirituality to commit sin. Isn't that hideous? It's absolutely disgusting. But I want to ask you something. Have you ever done this? Have you ever made an excuse? I'm going to do something spiritual just so you could do something fleshly. I'll tell you, there was a time, this is pretty embarrassing. But I was, when I was like 12, 13, there was this youth group down the street from us, uh, and we would go every Tuesday, right? Like, we didn't miss youth group on Tuesday. But you know why I went? 
I went so I could get out of the house and get drunk and smoke weed and hang out with friends. Like, I was thinking about this the other day as this w- w- was coming back in my mind and I was remembering this. And I'm like, man, I don't remember the youth pastor, but guaranteed 80% of the kids that were sitting in his bench, they were high and drunk. It's like, man, this guy had so much grace, so much forgiveness. We were horrible. But I tell my parents, I'm going to youth group. But it was really for this other reason to fulfill my flesh. Maybe it's not not something like that for you. Maybe it's something different. Have you ever said, um, I'm not going to go to the church function, whether it's prayer or service or the outreach or home group, whatever the case may be, because I need to spend time with my family. I'm not saying that that's a bad reason, but is it a true reason? Is that really why? So what about that time when you say, hey, I'm not going to go to the outreach this day because I want to spend time with my family and that's what you justify. But when it comes time, when that football game comes on, you turn on the football game and you have nothing to do with your family. You're locked in for four hours straight. Sometimes we can make all these excuses and justify all these things we do and cover it up with spirituality because we don't want people to see our true colors. But once again, the true colors will come out. Now, Absalom, in all fairness, he might have thought in some wild way that he was doing the right thing. Remember, David never avenged his sister who was raped. Absalom had to take matters into his own hands. Maybe he actually thought, because pride deceives, right? Maybe he actually thought that he was doing God a favor. I'll make a better king than David. Maybe he even convinced himself, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, that God told him to take that position. We have no idea. We don't know what's going on in Absalom's heart. But we do see a theme in Absalom that we see in the rest of the world with this rebellious nature. It's often the case that when rebellious people rebel against authority, they justify it on the on the grounds that their authority shouldn't be their authority. I rebelled because my authority doesn't deserve to be in the position that he is. Absalom probably has some justification going on in the midst of his deceit. So David, oblivious to what's happening, he says in verse 9, Go in peace. Ironically, Instead of Absalom going in peace, he's going to come back with a civil war. It's pretty ironic. These are also the last words that David speaks to his son Absalom. David won't see his son alive again. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 15 verse 10. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And uh, and with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, which he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew stronger, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Let's break this down and understand some of these things that's happening, that are happening. 
So, uh, we see Absalom, he sends out, sends out spies to say, hey, this is, this is the plan. Don't let the unfaithful people know, the people that are loyal to me. I'm gonna claim the throne. And he ends up doing it. He ends up claiming the throne here at Hebron. This is another picture of the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 3 to 4, Four, we see what's referred to as the abomination of desolation that Jesus speaks about. What is it? The Antichrist is going to come in the temple of God, in the place of God, and demand to be worshipped as God. He tries to claim God's throne. Okay, this is exactly what Absalom is doing. But he's not doing it alone. He influences some of the people that are for him. But not only that, These other 200 people, these 200 men that are mentioned in verse 11, it says they went along innocently. He was just trying to get a crowd. Some people knew what he was doing and some people didn't. We don't know exactly who these 200 men were, but he brought them into the equation. They don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, he claims to be king and they don't say anything. So their lack of words was basically like confirmation. Yeah, he is king. They were just thrown off. They had no idea what was going on. He was using these men as a form of deceit to bring more people to this place to recognize him as king and their silence technically did that. So Absalom, not only does he influence all these tribes of Israel, these 200 men, he also gets this specific guy, this counselor named Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was one of David's counselors. This guy was the real deal. We'll see at the end of the next chapter. They say his advice was like the oracles of God. Like everything he said was spot on. This guy was a great counselor. But this guy also was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Okay, so Ahithophel is going to go along with Absalom. We don't know why completely, but probably one of the reasons was David defiled his granddaughter. Okay, that could have something to do with it. Why Ahithophel ends up going with Absalom. So here at Hebron, it says, bless you, that he offered sacrifices there in verse 12. Absalom again. He tries to cover up his treason. He tries to cover up his rebellion. He tries to cover up his sin with spirituality. He provides sacrifices like God is really going to honor this. Maybe he thought God would honor the sacrifices that he provided. But who does this remind you of? It's King Saul, right? King Saul, he provided sacrifices to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying Absalom actually performed the ceremony, but he provided sacrifices to the Lord by himself, fulfilling the position as a priest. But he wasn't a priest. He was a king. He broke the law of God and justified it because he was doing God a favor. He was providing sacrifices. And what does Samuel end up coming back to tell Saul later? God desires obedience over sacrifice. He doesn't want your sacrifices if you're walking in disobedience. And that's exactly what Absalom is doing. He's providing sacrifices, but all the sacrifices in the world can't make up for disobedience. It says in verse 12 that the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. The interesting thing, one interesting thing among many about this is Absalom was logically the next heir to the throne. 
He was the oldest son that was remaining alive at that point, and he rightfully would have had the throne if David agreed to it. But Absalom, his ambitions got the best of him. Maybe he would have been king. Maybe if he would have waited and he didn't do this, we'd be talking about Absalom later on instead of Solomon. We don't know. But his ambitions got the best of him. And once again, he took something that didn't belong to him. Jesus tells us very clearly as the disciples in many places in the Gospels, but as the disciples are arguing, who's the best? Who's the greatest disciples? And like the disciples come on, like they weren't like really extraordinary men, right? They were fishermen and tax collectors and, and, and zealots and all these. They weren't like the, the really smart guys, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and all these different people. And they're going, Who, who's the greatest of us, of us, 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 this powerful group? And Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. Absalom doesn't understand this. But we see David will. Let's look. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David, he tells the people right off the bat, this likely caught him off guard. Absalom's, you know, claiming to be king. He's coming against you. David doesn't try to hold the position. As king, he flees for the protection of his people. Why? He didn't want Absalom to come start a war in Jerusalem. So he fled for the sake of the people, which is absolutely commendable. Look what happens next. Second Samuel chapter 15. Verse 15, and the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. Now, we see between Absalom and these concubines, some pieces of a puzzle are coming together. What's that piece of a puzzle I'm referring to? The prophecy from Nathan back in Nathan, uh, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 12. Uh, Nathan says, inspired by the Lord in verse 10, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He says, They're going to be division in your household okay i would say that a civil war is some division right i've had issues with siblings but a civil war never came from it uh but this is what is happening here in second samuel chapter 15 but he also says in verse 11 thus says the lord behold i will raise up adversity against you from your own house and i will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So between Absalom rebelling and these 10 concubines that are left in David's house are all part of the prophecy that God spoke through the prophet Nathan. That doesn't justify Absalom's rebellion. It doesn't justify his rape of these women, which we'll see later on in the next chapter. Nevertheless, this is something that God knew was going to happen. The text continues in verse 18. 
Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. These men have been sticking with David since the beginning. These are those outcasts we were talking about earlier in this teaching. These were the guys that came together and had David's back since David was banished from the palace and banished from the kingdom of Israel. When when David was fleeing from King Saul, Saul was trying to kill David as David was going to live in the land of the Philistines, his enemy. That's what he says in Gath. That's uh, in the land of the Philistines. That's... Um, um, that's where Goliath and his family actually lived. These guys, most of them are foreigners. Many of them are not even Israelites. And they're following David still. They have his back to the end. It's ironic, right? The foreigners support David, but his own family and his own people, many of them won't support David. This is a picture of Christ, Right? The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 11 that Jesus, he came to his own and his own didn't know him. His own, they ended up rejecting him. Even his brothers, they disbelieve. But who ended up accepting Jesus? Many foreigners. Though his own people, he was rejected in Nazareth. He was rejected by most of the Jews. Still today, he's rejected by most of the Jews, not all. But many foreigners, many Gentiles ended up accepting and still do accept Jesus Christ. Despite the betrayal of his son, of his family, of his friends, we see David, he still trusted the Lord. There are many Psalms, we don't have time to talk about them all, but there are many Psalms that David wrote during this time. I'm going to read a portion of one in Psalm chapter 3. If you look at the top, it says right there, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Uh, Lord, how they have increased who troubled me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So God's still speaking to David during this time. God speaks to David quite a bit. He has like six other Psalms that he writes during this time that he's fleeing from Absalom. It's interesting how when times get really tough, when we feel betrayed, when everything's going wrong, when when our life just seems to be turned upside down, how often in those moments we talk to God and, and God speaks back to us. So much of David's inspiration in the Psalms comes from his darkest times, the the times where he's troubled the most, whether it's fleeing from Saul or being confronted by Nathan the prophet or now fleeing from Absalom. Trials certainly produce that desire in us to talk to God. And often he talks back. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 19. Then the king said to Atai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. 
But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even uh, there also your servant will be. So David said to Atai, Go and cross over. Then Atai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. So this guy, Atai, apparently he just arrived yesterday, right? And he's ready to die for David. He's ready to flee the kingdom and die in the wilderness. Think about this. I think we really need to consider this. How does somebody impact your life in one day so much so that you're willing to die for them? There was something special about David. There was something real about David, something genuine about him. He wasn't like every other dude. He wasn't like every other ruler. And that thing was that was different was his heart after the Lord. People saw it. They recognized it and they were attracted to it. This guy in one day, he's ready to lay down his life for David. And he says just that. Look back at verse 21. As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives. He's making an oath to him. Surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be. Whether in death or life. Even there also your servant will be. It's ironic that Absalom his own son. David's own son. Is rebelling against him. But this guy that just met him. Again is ready to die for him. Absalom couldn't see what the rest of David's mighty men could see, that heart after God. But this is also a picture how we should respond to the son of David, how we should respond to King Jesus. Whatever happens, whether life or death, I'm going to stick to your side. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be there with you. Even if things happen in my life that I don't understand, that I can't deal with, that are so painful, Lord, I make an oath to you. Because that's what we're saying when we say the sinner's prayer. We're not just asking for forgiveness. We're committing our lives to Jesus Christ. No matter what happens, whether things are rough or life is blessed, it's supposed to be a lifelong, actually eternal commitment. He says once again, even there also your servant will be. Which brings me to point number four. Seek to be the king's servant. Seek to be the king's servant. That's the position that we're supposed to seek. No other position, but that's the, that position. That's the position that he calls us to seek. We're never going to be in the position of king. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we're the king of our own lives, but that's just not how the way the world works. Has anything ever happened in your life that was outside of your control? Okay, you're not king of your life, right? The Lord is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has ultimate authority. And he asks us to submit to that authority. He says it like this in John chapter 12, verse 26. Jesus speaking once again. John 12, 26. He says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Aren't these words very similar to the words that Atai said to David? It's foreshadowing. 
Jesus says very similar words and says, yeah, just as a tie responded to David, so too, if you call yourself my child are to respond to me. If anyone serves me, let him follow me to serve Christ is to follow Christ. To, to serve Christ is to do our best to imitate Christ, to talk like him, to think like him. We've been given the mind of Christ to act like him. This, in part, is what it means to be a servant. Jesus, he says, I think it's in Matthew chapter 26, he said, He who desires to be the greatest, let him be servant of all. You want to be great? Serve everyone. Serve God and serve people. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come here to be served as the King of Kings, the creator of all. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He is the way. That's the way he calls us to live as well. So David and the few faithful that are following him, it says they crossed over in verse 23. The brook Kidron. Now, the brook Kidron, this path that David ends up walking is very similar to the path that Jesus walked before he ended up dying on the cross. The difference between these things are, and we'll see even more of it later as David gets on the Mount of Olives, the difference between these two things are, is that David was suffering for his own sin. He brought this into his own life. And Jesus, he was suffering for the sins of the world. So God, he once again brings David to this place in the wilderness, as it says at the end of verse 23. After the Kidron broke Kidron, all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. It was in the wilderness that God made David a king. It was in the wilderness that God shaped and molded David. Yes, David was already anointed king years before, but he wasn't ready to be the king. Until all those years he was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, in caves, in enemy territory. And that's where God shaped and molded and made David the man that he became. This is interesting. God's taken him back in the wilderness. Why? He's still got work to do. He's still got things to change. He's still got things to shape. David still has things to grow in. God often takes us through the wilderness in seasons of our life. And what's the wilderness? Um, really, uh, among many things, it's, it's where there's trials. It's where there's tribulations. It's where you're hungry and you're thirsty and, and, and things seem completely out of your control. You're uncomfortable and you have nothing else to depend on but God himself. But it's in the wilderness where things tend to grow. And God often doesn't just take us through the wilderness one time around. For most of us, including me, one time in the wilderness isn't enough. We see that also with David. God brings him back to the wilderness because there's still a work to be done. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 24. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him bearing the Ark of the Covenant, and they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. 
So the spiritual people are actually following David and they're following David with the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God. The Ark of the Covenant isn't God, but it represents the presence of God. And God would use the Ark of the, Co- Ark of the Covenant in supernatural ways, um, sometimes to defeat armies, sometimes to slay his own people. We've already talked about that, though. But what we see here is a picture that God's presence is still with David. See, Jerusalem is getting ready to be taken over by Absalom by the end of this chapter. But God's with David. The kingdom of Israel isn't the kingdom of Israel without Yahweh. Yahweh's what makes the kingdom of Israel different than every other nation in the world. It's his presence. Because God is still with David. In a sense, it gives us the picture that the kingdom of God is still with David. It's not a place, the kingdom of God. It's the presence of God. So the Ark of the Covenant, along with the priests, are following along in David's direction. And it says here in Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 25, Then the kings said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of the Covenant back into the city, If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him. David, he says, hey, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, it's too great for one man. Send it back to the people. Uh, I want the presence of God to be with the people. I know the presence of God is still with me, but I want them to be encouraged. David, he truly wants what's best for the people. So much so, he's willing to surrender the kingdom. He's willing to surrender his crown. That's point number five. Be willing to surrender your position. Be willing to surrender your position. He's not holding on to his position. And this too is commendable. It's easy for us to hold on to positions, at least positions that we like. You know, if it's a job you don't like, you don't really care if you get fired or you lose your job, right? But if it's something that we like, we want to hold on to it. We want to keep it. We don't want to lose it. Lord, I got comfortable here. I planted roots here. I like what's going on in my life right here. But he says, anywhere I bring you, Anything I give you, any position I put you, you got to hold it with an open palm. you got to be willing to surrender it. Because every position is given by God, and it can be taken by God. Let me ask you something. What would you do if you lost your job today? If your boss called you and said, hey, look, you know, we ran out of money, or you did this thing, or whatever the case may be, and you're, you're fired. What would you do? How would you respond It'd probably be difficult, right? There'd probably be some some things you need to figure out. How how am I going to make ends meet for my family or for myself, whatever situation that you're in? It would be trying. It would be a test, as it was for David. But would you accept it? Would you trust the Lord through it? David had a very high position, the highest position in Israel. He was the king, but he didn't hold on to it. And the reason he wasn't holding on to it is because he truly wanted God's will to be done. He truly wanted the people to be benefited the most. If it was, if the people were better off with Absalom, praise God. He just had this heart of surrender. He was completely trusting the Lord, even in the midst of his trial. 
He wanted the Lord's will to be done, even if it conflicted with his desires. So the text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 27. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? That's another word for a prophet. Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahimaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So Zadok, prophet, also a seer, David saying, Hey, you're better off going back to Jerusalem so that you can benefit me there, so that you can influence Absalom or whatever the case may be. Go back with the people. Now, we don't know if David was actually doing this for his own benefit or he was doing it for for Zadok and Abiathar and Jonathan and Ahamaz's sake that he just didn't want them to face what he thought he potentially might face. The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he has his, had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. David is mourning. Why? Not because he lost his position. He's mourning because he knows that this is all happening because of something he did. All these people are suffering because of the sin that David committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. All of it is happening. This is all part of the prophecy that was communicated through Nathan the prophet to David. This is years later. And David's still suffering consequences. Not, it's not that God doesn't love him. God just said, hey, your sin, though I forgive it, still has consequences. And David... He's still facing those consequences, but not just him. The whole nation of Israel is facing consequences because of things David did years ago. So he's weeping at the state of his flock and how he put them in this position. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 31. Then someone told David saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Right off the bat, Oh Lord, Ahithophel, because everything he says is like the oracles of God. So he's like, man, of all people, he's like the best counselor that I have. I pray God better do something supernatural because everything he says is right on point. Absalom is going to take me out. If he takes the advice of Ahithophel. So he prays that God would turn Ahithophel's wisdom into foolishness. Now, God isn't going to answer this prayer uh, exactly the way that David prays it. Because Ahithophel is going to give Absalom advice. And and Absalom's not going to take Ahithophel's advice in in the next chapter. Had he taken Ahithophel's advice, David would have been wiped out with all his men. So God, what he's going to do instead is use this man that we're going to be introduced here in a few verses named Hushai. And Absalom's going to end up taking his advice. Point being, sometimes God doesn't always answer our prayers according to the way that we pray them. Sometimes it's very different in how God manages to answer those prayers. Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 32. Now it happened... 
When David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai, the, the archite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, with you there? Therefore, it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Indeed, they have uh, there with them their two sons, Ahimez, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Kind of along the lines as what I was communicating. This guy, Hushai, comes. He's devastated. David's his good friend. Absalom's even going to say that. Wait, what are you doing? You're friends with David. But David says, you're better used to me also. If you go back to the kingdom and, and you somehow, some way, get Absalom to not follow the advice of Ahithophel or, as we'll see happen in the next chapter, follow Hushai's advice personally. But I want to point something here, point to something here back in verse 32. Look at what David does. He came up to the mountain where he worshiped God. David worshiped God in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his tribulations. His son was out to get him, literally to kill him, to take his crown. And David still has a reason to worship God. David worshiped God when he lost one son. He's getting ready to lose another and in the midst of all of this tragedy, he still finds a place in his heart to worship God. God put that desire in him. God was able to help him see past the tragedy and see his sovereignty. That he was still going to make everything work out together for good, even though everything seemed to be such a mess. So, who's shy? is sent back to Jerusalem, and it says, this is where we'll close, at the end of verse 37, look at that last sentence, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. By all outward appearances, it looks like Absalom is the king, he's in Jerusalem, he's crowned, the people recognize that he's the king. But as First and Second Samuel keep teaching us, Everything isn't what it seems. Just because Absalom looks like he's playing the part, just because it looks like he has authority over the people and over the kingdom of God, he doesn't. Absalom, much like Saul, he's really like a second Saul, might be the new people's king as Saul was. But David is still God's king, regardless of how things look. See, Absalom, his pursuit of position and power is going to cost him dearly. I'm not talking about a little slap on the wrist. Literally, he's going to die because of the decisions that he makes specifically in this chapter. When Jesus tells us not to seek lofty positions, he's not doing it because he doesn't want us to have a good job or a great, a great career or he doesn't trust us with responsibilities. He's doing it because he knows what's going to happen to us if we seek that lofty position and it's not for him, from him. So he says, don't seek positions that aren't for me. 
Seek lowly positions and let me put you in the proper place. David never tried to make himself king. Even though he was ordained as king, we never see David his whole life throughout First and Second Samuel fighting for this position. Why? Because he knew this position was God's to give and God's to take. We should learn from both Absalom and David, really from David, <clears throat> to trust the Lord to put us in the positions that he pleases. Maybe you're discontent in the position that you're at. Maybe you're discontent at your job. Maybe you're discontent with your living situation. Maybe you're discontent with uh, whatever's going on in your life. I challenge you to look at the life of David and see how he found his contentment in the Lord and he trusted God to take care of everything. If God wants David in the wilderness for a season, God knows what's best. If God wants David on the throne for a season, God knows what's best. If God wants David in this transitional period where he doesn't know what's going on, God knows best. But if we want to know the positions that God desires for us, we got to seek them. And the Bible says, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we'll close here. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The context is worry. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about possessions. Don't worry about all these different things. Find your contentment in Christ. Seek God, and he's going to take care of the rest. You don't have to worry about the next position. You don't have to worry about the next season. You don't know if you'll be in the wilderness or if you'll be exalted. But God knows, and he's got a plan. And he's for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, God, that you give us um, both sides, Lord, uh, in this amazing story in Second Samuel 15. Uh, what it looks like to, to try to position ourselves and take what's not ours. And, and what it looks like to just trust you, uh, Lord, and, and know that you know what's best for us, even when we have no idea, even when we question it and we doubt it. God, I pray that we would find our contentment in you, that we would trust you, that we would seek lowly positions, God, not so that you would exalt us, but that we would seek lowly positions because we're content with lowly positions, that we would be content being your servant, God. And if you want to put us in different positions, if you want to change our scene, if you want to change our living situation, if you want to change our jobs, God, we give that to you, Lord, but help us to be satisfied fully satisfied in you where you have us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.